coming up in Need to Know, the Surgeon General recently brought to light the impact that loneliness is having on our health and our country. We discussed the importance of social connection. In all the fields, Martha Stewart's return as a cover girl gets us thinking about the most iconic magazine covers. And in Gotta Do, we continue our Money May series with our resident realtor, Maceo Thomas, the podcast that encourages you to know, feel, and do your very best life. This iconic podcast is Warden Webster. So, <laughs> hello, Bianca, and hello. I apologize because I inserted a line into your script there, but I, I know you don't, you're probably not aware of this. We're going to get to Martha in all the fields, but did you know that her first career wasn't a homemaker? It was a model. She used to be a model. I did know that. And I only knew that because, um, why are we talking about it ahead of time? Yes, I knew. We'll get back to it. <laughs> Today's episode of Warden Webster is brought to you by the letter L for lovely. That's just how I'm I'm feeling today. This next week is going to be a very busy week for me, like disgustingly busy with the new job and all the things that I have to do. So right now I am just being present. Um, I am here. I am showing up for the wonders and I'm in a lovely space because I feel like next week is going to be a chaotic shit show. So, you know, being present, I am feeling lovely. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that with you. Did you um, call your mother last weekend for Mother's Day? Yes. Did you send her flowers? No. Did you send her a card? Of course. Okay. Was there some nice um, poem inside? No. No, and I'm, 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 I'm stunned that you were asking all these questions about this. I mean, it was very straightforward. I sent her the card. I called her. So my mom has a trip pending to Ooh. Washington. I've been trying to pin her down on when she wants to come. All of her travel is essentially funded by me. So she's not getting no damn flowers. <laughs> She'll get a whole trip. So I just need her to, she's been dragging her feet for months and months. She was going to come in May, then she said June, then it's July. Now she's all the way into the fall. Girl, just pick some dates. So that, our conversation, for the most part, centered on that. Not all of her travel is funded by you. It is one. It must be wonderful to have a rich son that can support the travel. I hope my children will be able to support travel for me when I am in my later years. You well, I think so Noah will, will support your travel. I don't think Grace is going to do anything I for you. I don't think, think she's going to go will. out of her way. <laughs> to do anything really but you know we'll see i People change do not think she will because mother's day i spent at urgent care with her the morning of, of mother's day because she reminds me every mother's day that i work for her <laughs> and she was like i got this here ear infection take me to urgent care uh now <laughs> so that's what i that's how i spent my mother's day and uh yeah i think i've mentioned before that i think mother's day is just <sighs> lies and deceit anyway but here we are happy post mother's day to <laughs> all of them i hope somebody got rest because i didn't let's move on in the last few decades we've just lived through a dramatic pace of change we move more we change jobs more often we are living with technology that has profoundly changed how we interact with each other and how we talk to each other and you can feel lonely even if you have a lot of people around you 
because loneliness is about the quality of our connections. That was a quote from Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, we discuss America's loneliness epidemic. Once again, you bring things to my you bring things to my attention. Thank you for that. But earlier this month, the report came out about literally titled Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. And it has been getting a lot of just buzz and acknowledgement because one of the things that the report is stating or thing, the, some of the findings and things that are coming out of it is that the loneliness issue or, or people being lonely, isolated, et cetera, was happening before the pandemic, but just how much the pandemic exacerbated what folks were already experiencing due to a variety of reasons, but just kind of social disconnection. And so with the report coming out, there is now national strategy and advisory, which we'll kind of talk about later. But I'm glad that we are shining a light on this because I really feel like it is something that we, I don't know, maybe don't talk about enough just in terms of how, who we are as modern humans, (laughs) we're kind of just set up to be more disconnected. The way we utilize technology, for instance, as opposed to -to face-to-face interaction or real connection. They talk about how even kids and like young people have shittier social skills because all they're doing is texting each other or all they're doing is, you know, talking to each other virtually, et cetera. And so not knowing how to even engage or be connected in a real meaningful way. And I see that, yeah, I see that. I see that sometimes with my own kids. But one of the things that I, in in reading just in, in preparation about this, I was just reflecting on the times in my life that I felt the most lonely. This definitely ain't it because I am booked and busy and there's so much going on and there's people and I have community and I have, but I also know what attributes to me feeling whole or feeling feeling connected to people. And that's, that's because I, I think I'm intentional about it. But I remember when I first moved here a little over 20 years ago, and I was a lot younger, um, and and just trying to find my way, and not even having as much technology as I have now, but just trying to find my way. I was spending a lot of time by myself. I was going home, I was going to work, I was going to this class, and then I was just going home. And I remember those periods of feeling like I didn't have connection or people or and it was depressing like I can definitely say that now like it was really difficult but since then with kids with spouse with friends colleagues I am I don't know blessed to have the amount of social connection that I have and I am intentional about how I nurture it but I know during the pandemic when we were like quarantining and shit that isolation it was a struggle did any of this, you you shared this with me. What made you, I know you were like, you know, you want to talk about some mental health here. How about this? That was it because I thought that you might appreciate this particular story. I am very fortunate in that loneliness does not really attend me 
really ever. I think during the pandemic, I think we all felt the anxiety. I would I would describe my feeling about the pandemic was less loneliness and more anxiety around what that was all about. And I definitely had some anxiety provoking moments during the pandemic, but I never, I would never term it as loneliness. I am the type of person where I can be completely happy and content by myself for long periods of time. And I think really, if I'm being honest, I have lived by myself for such a long time, for the most part, with, you know, certain periods of being partnered and living with another person. But, you know, that was a short period of a longer period. So when you live by yourself month after month, year after year, then I think it's a lot easier to be by yourself because that's that's your normal. And it's a lot, to me, I think it's a lot about what the disruption of your patterns is. I think a lot of people like routines. I'm one of those people, you get used to having your day flow a certain way. And so if you're accustomed to being around a lot of people and suddenly that's shut off, then you're going to feel the impact of that. Whereas if you're by yourself most of the time already, and then suddenly everyone's doing it, you're like, well, I was kind of already in this space. So I kind of already know how to deal with this. So I think that that was kind of my my thing. You know, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, it was like, you know, I'm going to go out on the weekends. I'm going to I'm going to always have something to do. And in the last 10 years, it's been way less of that and more about, you know, I could I could take a nap in this spare three hours and be content. I could read this book. I could watch this on YouTube and I'm good to go. So it's like loneliness. That's not really that's never really been my bag. And hopefully it will. It never will be. I think you brought up uh, a good point that makes me reflect on my periods of loneliness in that transition. I think it's because I was going from, you know, my parents' house. Um, my mother it was <laughs> very much a, my mother was very much an extrovert and always had folks around. And like my house was kind of never empty, even when it was, whether it was family coming or, you know, my friends live there. So there was always something, something happening. People in my house, there's just always this energy. So when I finally lived by myself and still in a fairly new city, I was like, I don't know what this is. It didn't feel, I couldn't get comfortable being, I couldn't get comfortable being alone because I had never known it. You know, I never knew that, that solitude. Now I will say this. I miss it. I didn't know what I had. <laughs> didn't know what I had. So it was gone <laughs> because I just, whew, there's a different type of energy. Just as you, as you said, if you want to take that three hour nap, if you want to, you know, just having the, a different level of uh, autonomy in terms of what you do with your space and your time. But I think for me, I remember, I can, I can vividly remember just some of those periods of feeling lonely and disconnected. And I think the pandemic brought that back for me because there was such a shift in my routine in terms of I'm not going into the office anymore and engaging with folks and happy houring after and being at church on Sunday and fellowshipping with people, just being with people and having um, real connections. So to drastically change, that was, that was tough. Although there was these people in my house, so I was never really alone. <laughs> the the quality and the quantity and the type of engagement that that I wanted just didn't 
just didn't exist. And I remember talking a lot, thank God for therapy, a lot about that with my therapist in terms of how, you know, difficult it was, but we made it work, right? We sat outside together 10 feet apart and we (laughs) did all of the things that we did. But what also, you know, what Dr. Vivek, which I think he's so adorbs. There's something about him that every time I see him, I'm like, oh, anywho, just just even in that quote, in terms of how the pace of our life has changed, changing jobs more often, this DMV area is very transient. So one of the things that I know, as long as I've lived here, and I've been here over 20 years, but I've had so many friends come and go out of this area, that it was, sometimes it's even hard for me to get really close to folks, because I'm like, bitch, I know you about to leave. Or eventually, you know, our good, good girlfriend, Rosie used to live nine months from me. And then she was like, I'm going further north and I have feelings, but I still love her because she's still accessible. But even in just the way that we interact is different. So in the report, another thing that came up was really highlighting the physical health effects of loneliness. And those stats are 29% increased risk of risk of heart disease, 32% increased risk of stroke, 50% increased risk of developing dementia in older adults. And then um, there were other stats just around depression, just increased depression, because again, loneliness, the cause, the impact, um, whether you experience or not, is different for everybody. You and I just literally just talked about two very different experiences where you were like, I don't need people. And I'm like, I need people. It's just (laughs) very- It's interesting that that's what you heard from what I said. (laughs) Because you're saying you were always living alone. Well, no, you're right. But you're also just, you don't, you know, you feel things differently than I do. Well, I also think that there's a great contradiction here because everyone is clamoring to be together and to go outside and six, six feet apart and all that mess. And then when they sit at the table, they pull out their phones and everyone's got their head in their phones while they're together. So there is a great contradiction between mm-hmm. we want to be together, but then once we together, we spend all of our time on Instagram and not actually being together. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, and I'm glad that the pandemic is over, quote unquote, I'm using my air quotes. I'm reminded, Bianca, that there are choices to be made. You can delete all those apps, every single one of them. My gra- I'm, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use the example until I'm laying in, in my grave. My grandfather lived his whole life without a cell phone and somehow he did just fine. You can delete all those apps and instead make time to hang out with people in person and build those connections with them. You can write letters. Believe it or not, Bianca, the mail service still runs. They will still deliver a letter. <laughs> Rain, sleet, snow. <laughs> if you put it in the mailbox, they will still take it to someone's house. You can you can send letters, cards, <laughs> like the old, the traditional way of maintaining connections with people still exists. You just have to choose that as opposed to the seduction of an app, as opposed to you can still go to a bar and strike up a conversation with a stranger. You don't need a dating app. It's just the choice that you make. But if there was no dating app, there'd be no ad. You knew I well, was gonna. You knew I was gonna do it. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's true. Ed and I had a conversation recently mm. about, you know, maybe we would have uh, met each other um, anyway. Maybe we were destined mm. to meet. So I don't know that that's true. Maybe the universe would have opened another door. Maybe I would have walked into, I don't know someplace. But mm-hmm. you, you know, that's neither, That's for another show. But my point <laughs> is, is that, you know, you have choices to make. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Yes, because I 
I have to definitely agree with you in terms of we get together and then get on our phones. The husband is really, the husband isn't as connected to his phone as I am. And I think he's really good at being, when we go out, being present. So he makes me, um, I am more mindful. So I keep it in my purse. One thing that I have been doing recently, which I won't call their name, but another colleague inspired me to do uh, was just picking up the phone and calling people versus texting. I have really been, I have been leaning into that more. And lately, also being intentional about when people come to my mind to reach out to them in some form or fashion because there is a reason. So somebody I haven't thought about in a minute, let me call them and, and, and check in and make sure they're good. Or if I, if I can't call and have full conversation, then let, yes, I'll send you a text to let you know that, that I am thinking about you because it is so, it is so important. And I think that that is, um, I really think it's divine intervention when folks cross your mind to reach out to them because there is a reason. I don't know, maybe they're needing support in that moment, or maybe they're having a great day and want to share it with someone, or maybe just the reminder. I think it's about reminding people that their existence matters and that that there are people in this world that care about them. And one of the things that um, was in this article in this strategy or in this push around the loneliness epidemic that Dr. Vivek was mentioning is these four um, small but powerful steps. And the first one is connect. And um, there was like this two minute video that he did, but they mentioned connect, meaning answer a phone call or have a conversation, but just to be intentional. So connect, share. The example that he gave was to share, to invite somebody over for a meal, but also sharing space with someone else. So the idea of just kind of removing some of these technology barriers to actually share space. He said, listen, be fully present when engaging with each other, really listening to what people are saying, which goes back to what you were saying about we get together, but we're still on our devices and to serve, finding ways to give back to your to your community, to your family. And so they're saying that these are some small but powerful steps to, I don't want to say combat, that's terrible, to reduce these feelings or experiences of loneliness. And it's really about being with and finding ways to be with, with other people. Now, granted, let's, I, my caveat is, people that you actually enjoy <laughs> because there are people out here that you whew, that you don't necessarily need to connect with that can also just being in their presence or their mess can also increase your heart disease your risk of stroke and your depression and some most stuff so i would caveat that with the importance of social connection with people that are um, affirming and uplifting to our spirit going back to your to your comment about when someone's on your mind to reach out to them. One of the advantages of technology is that that's now so easy to do. So like it doesn't take a whole lot of effort when that person crosses your mind to, to make an immediate connection with them. What I, what I often do with my friends is, you know, your phone, well, the iPhone, because you don't have an iPhone, you have that other, that other company and who knows what they do. But on what? the iPhone, <sighs> it reminds you, it like sends you memories from your phone from your picture bank. So every once in a while, I'll just share a photo of my friends and I with them and be like, 
I won't even say anything. I'll just send the picture of us being silly somewhere years ago. And then that's it. I, I keep, keep, keep stepping. And they have that. Sometimes they'll comment. Sometimes they'll just like give me a, a reaction back. Or sometimes they'll write. Or sometimes they'll launch a conversation. Um, but it's just my way of saying, you know what? I remember this. This just popped into my head. Or I just saw this picture of us. And I'm just sharing it with you for whatever you want to do with it. And so that's kind of what I do. I recently, I haven't told you yet, but I, I recently got um, a card table. And I'm going to start like a monthly like game night that I'm going to do and invite over just a Fun. small gaggle Me. of people. Me. I'm sure I'll put you in the rotation. But the idea <laughs> is that I want to I want to create my own little social thing and then just kind of do it. And I've decided that card night is going to be my thing. But I think to the wonders, I would recommend like, what's your thing? Maybe your thing is something about food. You're going to get together everyone. Maybe it's a potluck. Maybe you're going to cook for people. Maybe it's a wine night. Maybe it's, I don't know, fucking charades, whatever your thing is. Like everyone has something that they kind of lean into. Maybe it's you invite everyone over and y'all watch a basketball game. Cause that's your thing. Like the whole point of it is that it needs to be something that speaks to you. And I was like, you know what? I, I've been wanting to play cards. I love cards. That's a great something to build like a little, like social around and branded as like Isaiah's card night. Oh my God. Can you see the logo? It's going to be great. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I don't really do cards so much. So if you do like a taboo situation, invite me to that one. No, um, I don't even you know, know what, what that is. Better that yet, sounds... I can bring taboo and it's so much fun. I can see I'm not you. interested. But you're, <laughs> you'll like it. Two things that you just mentioned. So I don't know. Again, I don't, I don't use Apple products, but Facebook and I have this app called Time Hop also does the same little memory thing. And literally just last night, I sent a picture to one of Noah's friends' moms because a picture of our kids together from five years ago came up in my phone as the memory. And I was like, damn, our babies are about to move on to junior high. And so I just sent her that, that message. And then we had like this whole wonderful connection. So I love that idea. And we used to do, I used to be better about it and my kids love it, but I used to do a Sunday dinner. I used to do a monthly Sunday dinner and there would be a theme and it would kind of be potluck and, and folks would just come over. And I actually got that from my mom. My mother used to entertain a lot, but she, we used to host Sunday dinner at, at her apartment and I just loved it. My mother used to have a catering company and the tagline was celebrating life with food. And that is really something that has always brought us together. So the point you make about like finding your thing and bringing people together around it, I think is excellent. Cards aren't my thing, but I can bring something else to entertain myself at your card party. But I don't want to get us too far off the sidetrack because I do want to get to these recommendations <laughs> mm -hmm. that the advisory committee have made. And I have some comments about those. What is it going to take for you to leave Facebook? Because I don't <laughs> think that Facebook has any value. So maybe as a, you know what, don't answer that. Wander, I'm going to plan a segment around the, the apps and Facebook in particular. Facebook is trash. We should not, the, we should be encouraging the Wanders to delete it entirely. And I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised that you're still on there, if I'm being honest. We actually, in our, what, first year, like one of our first few episodes, we did a whole segment on social media and Facebook came up. I'm still on it. I'm old. I don't know. I enjoy. It's fine. But I'm also on Instagram and not on TikTok because they're about to ban that in the country anyway. 
you've made some sweeping statements that I don't think comport with your morals <laughs> and your worldview. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to call that out because I, I just have to say it. Tell the national strategy. <laughs> and I'm, before I, before I do that, I would like to say to you and to the Wanderers, your reaction to me saying that to you is very similar to the reaction to my friends when I say it to them. They acknowledge that Facebook is problematic. They acknowledge that Facebook is using their information. Like they, they know this. But then when I press them on why they're doing it, they're like, oh, leave me alone. I'm, I'm, let's talk about something else. No. It is, who y'all need to have our, y'all speed held to the fire. Who isn't using our information? Anytime you go onto any website and they're like, accept cookies, and you just accept the shit and giving your stuff away anyway. Okay. Every time you so, sign okay. up for a loyalty thing, okay. everybody well, then, has our information. Do you sleep? Do you sleep with your front doors unlocked and open? No, you, you don't lock them, Jason. Do you I leave do. you you lock them? Do you leave your children unattended in public spaces? Do you just let Grace roam throughout the fairgrounds? Why not? They, dri- they, they grab children every day. Why do we have to watch Grace? You Wait, use- <laughs> don't use your traumatic fairground story. You cannot just, <laughs> your, your excuse can't be what well, they're getting it anyway. No, 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 no. You still lock the door. You still watch your children. You still put the seatbelt on, even though cars are flipping all over the highway. So Bianca, <laughs> the fact that they still get your information is not a reason to keep Facebook. We will come back to this. But okay. why are you still on Elon Musk's Twitter? Twitter is not the same as Facebook, first of all, because no. I don't put, wait, hope. Well, go ahead. Because we can get into it if you really want to get into We're it. We're not. The I'm level not of the level of personal information that goes yeah. on Twitter is next to nothing. There's no photos of me on there. There's no checking in on there. I'm not half the people I have on there aren't my. Fr- I don't know these people. Like it's the level of personal information that people put on Facebook is unmatched to really any other app. This is true. Save maybe Instagram. Yeah, because Instagram, we put a lot of things out there too. I'm not, I'm not on the Twitter, so I don't even know, but um, national strategy. So as a result of this report on loneliness that Bianca has been referencing, they came up with an advisory group that came out with a, with a national strategy of things we should do. And this is HHS came out with these strategies and there's six things. I'm going to mention the six things and then we can come back. I have a comment about really all of them. And then Bianca, if any, you want to talk about in particular, number one, strengthening social infrastructure, which includes all, which includes things like parks and libraries, as well as public programs. Number two, enacting pro-connection public policies at every level of government, including things like accessible public transportation or paid family leave. Number three, mobilizing the health sector to address medical needs that stem from loneliness. Number four, reforming digital environments to critically evaluate our relationship with technology. Number five, deepening our knowledge through more robust research into the issue of loneliness. And finally, number six, cultivating a culture of connection. You don't have to sell me on any of these things. I can make a case for all of them and individual ones. I'm also going to point out all of these things are the type of things that the American government refuses to fund and invest in because they see these things as not essential, but as as extra, as lanyap, as some kind of like privileged things. Like, why do we need to invest in culture? Why do we want to do these things? So, you know, we have to convince people that the arts, the National Endowment for the Arts should remain publicly funded. Like they're like, why do we want to invest in the arts? Let me just have my little soapbox. We want to invest in the arts for things just like this, just so that we can have an escape for people who've had a stressful ass week. And maybe on a Friday night, they want to just go and sit and be entertained and to have another part of their brain and their spirit 
nourished. And so that is true value, true value. But Bianca, we have to convince the conservatives that that that, that money needs to even be appropriated. So my point is this, when we have to fight just for the arts endowment, they don't even want to pay for that. You know damn well, they're not going to pay for all of these things because they don't see these things as worthy of investment, as worthy of tax dollars. They see them as privileged things. And I think part of it is because if you're an affluent person, then you just pay for for your for your vacations. You pay for all the things that you want. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to worry about it. I think that's where it comes from. It's not that they don't take advantage of these things. It's just that they have the privilege of being able to just when they want to have an escape, they'll fly on their jet to to wherever. Yep. And these mm, these six things make so much sense. And I can think about even ways that I see, I do see them being supported in my community and then the ways that I see, see the lack. So even for instance, the very first one, strengthening social infrastructures, parks, libraries, public programs, the libraries in my area, I, I don't know what it is. I appreciate this reason. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use the right word. I appreciate this resurgence. Is that it? <laughs> yeah. In the in the value and the appreciation for the library and the library system, they have been doing some amazing renovations to the library in, in my community and nearby because it is clear that a, the library is such an important public space for people who maybe don't have computers at home and need to access, for people who are experiencing homelessness and need to have a place to be during the day. I love it in some cities where they're putting um, showers and social workers in the libraries. Like, how are you using these places that already exist in the community to better serve the community? Parks. I talked a lot on this show about when we were in the thick of that quarantine, Oh, I spent much time at our neighborhood parks and trails and saw the, and I can tell when there is investment in those, in those spaces and when there isn't, because I feel like there's so many, we know the importance of green space. We know the importance of just you know, outdoor tables and seating and community where or walking trails where people can get outside. Shit, dog parks. Like there are, but in a lot of neighborhoods, those do not exist. You know, we're talking to Maceo uh, later, so we shall be talking about <laughs> the real estate and things and where people, where they put money and where they don't. And that is just, it's it's clear. The The second one about enacting pro-connection public policies, paid family leave. You want to talk about giving people the opportunity to have connection. They need to know that connecting with family, having children, taking care of their loved ones is not going to put them at risk of losing their job. Yeah. And I appreciate the administration doing the labor to put this out, but they, they are fully aware of what they're up against. And to just be blunt about it, the conservatives just don't agree with paid family leave. That is that they don't see that as a value. They just disagree with us that that's a thing. And so that's where we are. And the way that this country is constructed is that we have to have broad support on anything to do anything. And so because the conservatives don't agree with us on paid family leave, they see that as some sort of welfare. We're just not, that's why we don't have it. And so 
this is where we are as a nation. And until we decide to shift the way we think about labor, the way we think about work-life balance in a, in a really a, a holistic way, nothing's going to change. And I think this is one of those things that will, will take a true like generational shift and change. We're right now in the space of working five days a week, 40 plus hours a week, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think that future generations will just have to rethink what human work looks like and just make some different decisions around how much of the human experience should be devoted to work and labor and how much of it should be devoted to rest and recreation. That takes a long time to like kind of sort itself out. And you can see around the edges, people are making some changes, you know, 32 hour work weeks, four day work weeks, that sort of thing. But right now it's considered fringe. That's considered like progressive, quote unquote. <laughs> to wrap this up, the Surgeon General of the Nation is, is, is telling us that loneliness is, is an issue. We encourage you to think of ways to, to literally do the four things, to connect, to share, to listen, to serve. Um, reach out to that person you haven't talked to in a while. Let someone, if you are feeling lonely, let someone know that you need support. What resources are available to you in order to help you live your best life. We, we want that for you. Martha Stewart made history this week by becoming the oldest woman to be featured on the cover of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. In this week's All the Feels, we look back at the most iconic magazine covers. Now, Bianca, obviously, I got this idea from Martha. You and I shared uh, her cover, and we can talk about the cover in a second. But I actually want to start with you know, why we as a culture value magazine covers and, and is it even still a thing? Cause when I was, when we were growing up, I should say like being on the cover of whatever time Vogue, you name it, jet <laughs> ebony, like that was like the height. That's how you knew you had made it. Like, Oh, I'm on the cover of time magazine. So I am, I am it. I'm on the cover of ebony. You can't tell me nothing. Do you, what is that about? And do you feel like that's still a thing? do recall, God, when I think about Bianca's youth, I can literally see my elementary, like junior high and high school bedroom just covered with pictures from magazines. I used to get Vibe magazine when it was big. Remember, it, was, it used to be like 12 by 12. That burger was huge <laughs> and thick. <laughs> Okay. Tupac on the cover. So he was on my wall. Like I was just telling Cliff that I used to love Fredro Starr. So when Sunset Park came out, I had that poster on my wall. But so much of everything that was around me in my space came from magazines before there was like vision boards, <laughs> but just pictures from magazines and the cover. I know the cover for me, sometimes the, the images, the cover art, the, the covers of essence, like that sometimes makes me say, yes, I'm going to buy it because I bought a, in an airport a few years ago, Missy Elliott was on the cover of, it wasn't a black magazine. It might have been like, I don't know, but she looked fucking amazing. And I was like, yes, I'm going to buy this because Missy looks great. But I think that there is one, the cover is a big deal because that's the draw, right? Like that, you know, you want to see what's inside, whatever, whatever. But there's just something nostalgic, I think, too. I don't buy as many magazines, obviously, as I used to, 
But yeah, I can literally just think about some of the the magazine covers and damn it, Oprah on every single (laughs) cover of (laughs) O. Every single one. (laughs) She said, I am a cover girl. The reason I asked if it's still a thing is I feel like there was a shift when, you know, the internet and social media came along and people just started being able to gain notoriety and promote themselves in a different way. And so being on the cover, so to speak, I think lost some of its steam once the internet came into being because there were just so many other ways to grab people's attention. To me, I think that that was the major shift. As you know, magazines have been on a decline for decades, same with newspapers, because we've just moved away from that and digital. And to the extent that magazines are still successful, it's their online versions. So you can still go online and get most of the magazines, but you know, the print ones are really, are really drying up for the obvious reasons. Bianca, there is a story here, which we will share from highsnobbity.com. It's the 20 most memorable magazine covers of all time. Now, Wonders, you could just go to your Google machine and type in magazine covers all time, which is what I did. And I came up with all sorts of lists. So I could have grabbed a bunch of different lists. So what I did was I grabbed this one. And then just because Jet played such a part of my formative years, we're going to look at some Jet covers. And then because Madge is the leader of my life, we're going to look at her all-time top covers as well. And then whatever Bianca wants to talk about. I looked at this and I said, damn it, you will find any opportunity to put Madonna into this here potosphere. Why? <laughs> so uh, wonders next week, I'm going to be in pairs to see tennis and to see Beyonce. There's a rumor, Bianca, that Madge will be joining B in Paris for that show. Now, this is a rumor. It has not been confirmed, obviously. But can you imagine if the universe decided that the one Beyonce show that I was going to just randomly walk into is the also the same show that Madonna will walk into. If that if that occurs, if that actually happens, that will be spooky. How the stars aligned for me, wouldn't it? I should play the lotto that day. I just, what go go the the covers. I don't even have anything. I don't even have anything for that. Carry on. <laughs> Snobbity first. Oh, snobbity. So I'm so there's 20 covers on here. Bianca, I'm not going to talk about all of these. I'm just going to talk about the ones that either I remember or that I think stood out to me. The most controversial cover, maybe of all time, is the Time magazine cover from January 2nd, 1939, that featured Adolf Hitler as man of the year. Now, a couple of caveats here. January 1939 was at the very beginning of the war. A lot of things that we would see in that war had yet to happen. And I also think it's important to remember when you're discussing Adolf Hitler that he was chancellor of Germany. That was an elected position. And so I think what's lost to history oftentimes when we talk about him is that he was elected by the people of Germany. So this is who they chose. And so I think in that context, you have to, that's why you can maybe pass off why time put this man on the cover. But it goes without saying, Bianca, this man is responsible for the extermination of millions of Jews, countless deaths in the Second World War. And so to see him on the Time magazine cover, Time considered to be the pinnacle of magazine covers, is jarring even today. Time had also, um, when they had made Elon Musk... Um, more recently, Man of the Year, I think it was in an article or or something that they were saying that essentially the person of the year is not necessarily 
a good person. It is, it is who is the person in this time that is having the most, who they deem the most impact in our world, good, bad, or indifferent. So I could see why. So in that sense, where it's like, they're not, it's not greatest person of the year. It's not, it's literally man of the year. Who is, who is the person that is creating the news, creating the destruction, creating, because I think wasn't um, Trump man of the year once? Like, who is the person that is, in a sense, also driving the news of that year, persons or people, because I think they've they've done people um, as well. And so I could see why in 1939, it, it would have been Hitler. Controversial, yes, but now having an understanding of kind of how and why they choose the person makes more sense. Could we convey his impact on the world without showing his image? Mm. Could yeah. you convey? Could you convey the impact of yeah. Donald Trump on society without showing his image? So that would be a way mm. of acknowledging their impact on the world without mm-hmm. giving them the quote unquote honor of being on the time cover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You could literally just put their name and not their face. Yeah. That's so true. anyway. Hmm. Muhammad Ali, The Passion of Muhammad Ali from Esquire magazine, April 1968. This is a picture of him standing against a white backdrop with arrows looking like they're going through his body. It's a very striking image. I remember this, Bianca. I've seen this before. It was obviously published before we were alive. But this is a very visually catching, I guess you could say, cover to a magazine. And this was Esquire. I had never seen this. I'd never seen this image before. I knew of Muhammad Ali protesting the Vietnam War and being very clear that he wasn't going to war, et cetera, and just really taking the stand and, you know, the backlash that he received after that. So I definitely understand the the image and why, but I don't know. I don't know why I feel like this is the first time I'm seeing it. Okay, Esquire. First of all, I didn't also didn't realize Esquire had been around so long. Oh, yes. They're, they're an, uh, an ancient publication. Scroll down to this New Yorker cover with Barack and Michelle. Now, this one will take you back. July 21st, <laughs> July 21st, 2008, The New Yorker. So this was a cover that featured a cartoon of Barack Obama before his election as president and with his wife, Michelle. She with the fro, with the AR-15 on her back, legs crossed, army fatigues. He in like this Arab attire, I guess you could say. I don't know what the right Mm -hmm. terming of what he's wearing. Let me read what they wrote here in the description. It says, labeled tasteless and offensive by Barack Obama's campaign spokesman, Bill Burton. The satirical cartoon by Barry Blitt was called the most memorable image of the 2008 campaign, according to the New York Times. Blitt was quoted saying, anytime I produce a cover, I always regret it afterward. So the cartoonist, the cartoonist who, who did the cartoon said that he regretted that it ended up being used as a cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just remember the the image because and and just the whew, just the shit that they were were getting from from folks even during the campaign and elections when they would fist bump and people were calling it radical and just the just the shit. Now to be clear, the cartoonist was not anti- Obama. He was made, it's a satire. So like you can look there, I think Osama bin Laden's on the wall. Mm -hmm. Like they're clearly making it, they're poking fun at the fact that everyone is burning in the the fireplace. 
they're making a point to say why everyone's saying the Obamas are so anti-American. So I'm going to just show you how farcical this is. So that was the point he was trying to make. I don't know how successful that was. That image of Michelle is so like striking there. Just like, oh, I don't know. It gives me chills looking back on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Scrolling down, you know, Rolling Stone put mass murderers on the cover. The Boston bomber was on a cover. I think this was in August of 2013. This is the beginning, Bianca, of this shift in the culture around whether or not we want to give the name and the image of like mass murderers. So Mm. the Rolling Stone puts the Boston Marathon bomber on their cover. And this was in 2013. This was around the time that news organizations started to make that shift. So now when there's a shooting, they don't really give you a whole lot of information about the person. They don't show their name. They don't show their face. You have to really dig to get that information because the thought is, is that these people were doing these crimes for the notoriety. So in other words, we're not going to put you on a magazine cover because you decided to bomb the Boston Marathon. You're going to go to jail. We're going to electrocute your ass and we're not going to put you on the cover. Mm-hmm. Are you going to go to the, the the Janet Jackson cover? Janet Jackson from Rolling Stone, September 1993. This is the one where she has her arms raised, just having her boobies grabbed. Was this the same shot that she used on the album or was this like separate from that? Because she has a very similar pose, but cropped on the album cover. It is the, it it does say, according to the Los Angeles Times, Jackson first, and also that's Renee's hands. So let's not forget that it's Renee's hands. Her, Wait, her, who's Renee? Her, uh, one of her ex-husbands? Yes. Is what? there a reason why we needed to name check that? Uh, because Renee, um, they were together for a long, oh, you didn't watch the that Janet documentary. No, no, I think it was and on then a he tried, have. And then he was trying to, um, then trying to sue her for all this money. He, mess key mess um according to los angeles times jackson offered photos from the album artwork session to rolling stone for its 1993 cover um and then the rolling stone director said we had a choice of shooting her ourselves but they offered us this and the image is very powerful so yes these were these were their their photos and they said rolling stone you gonna use this I remember this just getting a lot of buzz because this is really when Janet was was moving away from that kind of control, that little, <laughs> that, that, that younger, more youthful, I don't want to say innocent, but that too, she was coming into her sexy own. The article is literally Janet Jackson, the joy of sex. And I'm like, yep, indeed. You know what it reminds me of? It is not believable that that woman who put that cover on that magazine would later claim at the Super Bowl that she had no role (laughs) in her bra being removed. And you know what I mean? You know what I mean? So it's not believable. It's not believable. But anyway, I'm going to let it go because, you know, I'm going to let it go. We are. We're not coming back (laughs) to that. We are not. We just carry on. (laughs) Let's shift. Anything else you want to say before I take us to the jet covers? (laughs) um one of the you know I will never forget one of the because time is always good for like really striking covers like that's what they do and I was thinking back to the last time I bought a time magazine it was actually um a premature baby on the cover with the tubes and so they were talking they had this whole article on preemies and I was in the grocery store and I saw it and I immediately thought of my little Noah and so and I and I bought the I 
I bought the magazine, I read the articles, and that was one of the last time I bought one. But all that to say, once again, the covers are what can really grab you and make you buy it. I was never buying Time Magazine before, but because I had that connection, that's, yeah, that's what what drew me in. So yes, they are important. Let's get to Jet. So first of all, let me just say, when I was growing up, there was one magazine that came to the house. Just one. Y'all, it wasn't time. It wasn't even a TV guide. It was Jet Magazine. And I, before I even think, talk about the covers, the Jet Beauties were their own little whole, we could do a whole segment on Jet Beauties and the impact that Jet Beauties have on, on the culture. But this is about the covers. So I'm going to talk about the covers today. Bianca, just the, just the, the impact of having these covers and seeing a different Black beautiful face every time they came to the house it was just like oh this this is for us that that that, the feeling that it gave was this is for us and I loved it I fucking loved I would cut them out and keep all the jack covers and see oh who's going to be on it next they really skewed to black women every once in a while you would see a guy but it was mostly black women on the covers of jet magazine and I just thought it was fabulous the articles were you know little I don't know, three or four paragraphs. It was not in-depth reporting. <laughs> it was very fluff. <laughs> it was not, but they gave I you mean, what you needed. I kind of feel like it was a people magazine for black people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. That's a great way to put it. It was and a people Jet magazine for black people. If you ever, if you don't know of Jet magazine, do they still make Jet? I should have looked it up. I don't think so. They they moved to they moved to digital, and then I don't think it survived. Just not the same. Digital, yeah. Okay. Same with Ebony. Yeah. Let's get to these covers. Oh my God, 1973 Cicely Tyson looking just magnificent. March 15, 1973. Google it. August 9th, 1973. Pam Greer. Oh my God, she could just have everything. Just gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. April 3rd, 1975, Diane Carroll. What? <laughs> these covers Icons, are, legends, and stars. These covers are everything. I love this Sicily. Go, go back to Auntie Sicily. Sicily our, 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 our ancestor, our queen. I love just how authentically black she looks radiant but it just it 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 looks it's beautiful it is it is it child these these uh instagram influencers could not yeah they they can never these covers are are just stunning and so throughout the 70s and 80s i mean they just had so many people michael jackson donna summer uh i'm just scrolling through the list diana ross uh from the late 70s and then it just goes on so this is a list from uh, where are we? We were on the Huffington Post. And I mean, I was just like, I spent literally all night just scrolling through these covers. Iman from 1993. Oh my God. Eddie Murphy from 1984. Like when his career first started, there were some problematic people in here. Bill Cosby before his fall from grace. More recently, they had Jay Hood. You know, it's it's really, um, you know, the more recent ones are people that are obviously more recent. But like to me, the classic jet, like from the 80s and early 90s, is the jet that I remember. Like, if you scroll down the list, they had 
Gabrielle Douglas in 2012. She was the, I think, a skater. So like she was on the cover. Um, and then Carrie no, Washington. She was a gymnast. She was a gymnast. Oh, thank you. Not a skater, a gymnast. You know, Olympics. They're mm. all the same. Yeah. Uh, Barack Obama has <laughs> obviously been on the cover. Um, I don't know. I just thought I scrolled through this for quite a bit, Bianca. I loved all of this. Just beautiful. Just, just beautiful. I and I'm still right. I'm I'm still in the in the 70s because I had to stop and pause at Madam Pam Greer. Isn't what that a gorgeous picture of her? <sighs> it's good. It makes me want to go back and watch Foxy Brown and Coffee all over again. I used coffee to have those. Such a great movie, we should review. We should review Coffee. That would be so good. We should. We anyway, should. you were anywhere saying where Pam Greer has anywhere where Pam Greer has beautiful bosoms out is always a good time. And one thing she gave you in the seventies were those bosoms. Mm-mm-mm. Now, before Carrie? we finish up the covers, let's talk about Madonna. Now, I know that. Madonna triggers you for reasons that I've never quite understood because I don't think she ever did you nothing. She's just living her life, putting out her little songs, doing her little <laughs> tour. I don't really think it has any negative impact on your life whatsoever, really, but you always seem to have some sort of reaction to match. So let me just give the trigger warning for those of you out there who seem to have an irrational reaction to Madonna. You can skip on to Gotta Do with Maceo Thomas, but I'm going to spend the next two minutes here giving Match her flowers. Now, Bianca, I'm not even going to ask you what your favorite Match cover is because I We're not doing all that today. You probably don't even know. I don't even care. But let me just say that she did a time cover at the very beginning of her career. And if you scroll down, it's the one that says uh, Madonna, she's so hot or something along those lines. The Playboy. Madonna, why she's hot. (laughs) Yes. So this was Time Magazine. Um, from 1985, Madonna, why she's so hot. And the actual photo doesn't age well because she looks horrible here in my view. Just like, I mean, 80s, white trash, everything. Now maybe, maybe she's like, maybe that's what she was given. And she's like, look, I don't, I don't care if this is what I'm serving and you get what you get. So the photo is forgettable. But as like your introduction to society, as like your W, as your debutante coming out <laughs> to be on Times cover so early in her career and have the headline be why she's hot. That's an iconic cover, not for the photo, but for the time that it took place and the career that came after that. Like imagine Beyonce in the first year of her career mm-hmm. being on time with a similar cover. Like you just, this is the pinnacle of Madonna and like her like cultural impact, I think. Yeah. And that picture is not great. I definitely like the one the year before the Rolling Stones picture. Um, the Rolling Stones cover, I feel like is is better. This one, I don't, anywho, Karen, I forgot. I completely forgot this uh, Playboy, of course, Madonna. Why not? And, and go ahead and tell me how many times she's been in Playboy, because I feel like it's more than once. It, she did it early in her career. And then I think she revisited it a little bit later on to do like um, when like a more glammed up version. I don't think she's done it more than like twice. And in both instances, the photos were not much to write home about. So Bianca, before we leave this segment, if you could be on a cover, which cover would you pick? And then what would your, your, your the theme of your cover be? Um, what magazine? And then what's, what's it given? <laughs> Hold on real quick, because I'm still on Madonna, because now I'm scrolling down in it because I didn't know. But Madonna on the cover of British Vogue, when I first got to that, I was like, she looks like Ellen DeGeneres. Anywho. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Looks like she looks like Ellen. And, and, you know, I have 
my feelings about Madonna, but there are actually some covers that she actually looks that she actually looks good with before you know all of the things that she's done to her face which also just makes me wonder what she would look like now if she didn't do all of these things to her face because she was aging well you know what never mind that's that's your homegirl next time y'all are in the group chat ask her what the hell is going on okay what cover I don't know. First thought, I was like, well, I want to be a Jet Beauty of the Week. Once you, when you started talking about Jet, I was like... But that's I, not a cover. I know, but but the Beauty of the Week was just so iconic. What's it given? It's probably, again, Black, so it's probably giving Essence, to be honest. I would, I would probably, I would love to do an Essence cover. I feel like they do covers really well. I don't know. I, you know, I love, I love Halloween and I, and I love my historical black uh, Halloween figure. So I would probably do an October issue. I would probably still be, I don't know, in some type of tutu. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's just a tutu and a pasty. And, <laughs> and the, the, the headline or the cover is like, you know, Bianca Ward, your favorite professional superhero or something, something. It would be, it would be me out there saving the world. I think. I don't know. I would do, I would do a legacy cover. So either Vogue, Vanity Fair, Essence, like a magazine that has a Rolling Stone, a magazine that has a significant tradition. Mm-hmm. And I would do, a, I would do a recreation. I would, I would recreate a classic cover. So there's so many great covers that um, we saved during our childhood, we would cut out and put into frames. I would recreate, I would bring one forward into like the future. Cause I think that would be so iconic. Like we were just, we, we spent two or three minutes on Cicely Tyson's jet cover. I could, I would love to like, see you recreating that look for today on the cover of jet. Like that would be, that would be fabulous. That would be an homage to her. It would be paying, it would be bringing the fashion for, I mean, there's so many reasons to do something like that. As much as I hate remakes and rehashes, that would be stunning. So to have mm-hmm. my take on like a classic cover, I think that's what I would do. I like that idea. I was like, do I want to recreate that Janet cover and have Cliff hold enough you long oh my god that's such a great idea that is such a great idea now wait is that a cover that you would be comfortable with knowing your children like seeing yes because that was the other thing like I feel like there was so much uproar about the issue but she was covered essentially you didn't see no nipple you didn't see or how about this? How about you? How about the take be Cliff takes his shirt off, you stand behind him, and then you recreate it in another way. Fun. And then you're grabbing the pets. Like, see that when I say recreate it, we're not gonna do the same thing. We're gonna put our spin on it. That would be totally cute. But <laughs> ask him if he wants to do that. <laughs> and that'll be that'll be the cover art for like this week's episode. <laughs> Wonders, let us know what covers you would remake. Get into our mentions at wardandwebster at gmail.com and we might let you know what you've said when we do our next Wanderisms episode. We're moving on. In today's Money May Gotta Do, we're talking to the DMV's greatest realtor, Maceo Thomas, all about the yays and news of home ownership. Hello. So before we even get started, Isaiah, I wanted to play, how do you know Maceo? How do we know Maceo? Because I feel like everybody has a, um, especially if you live in the D.C. area, you know 
Maceo. Everybody knows Maceo. How do you? So I think, and Maceo can correct me, I think years ago when I was working for Metro Teen AIDS in Washington, D.C., this was many moons ago. And this was, it's now gone out of business. It was a community-based organization in the DMV that focused on youth services. And I worked in capacity building. And I think I met Maceo as one of like the community leaders um, within that space. Um, and Maceo can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's where I know I'm from. Or just, you know, like, the alley. It was definitely either. It was definitely either at work or the alley. And I wish y'all could see his face. It could have been the alley, but uh, it definitely was Metro Teenage. And at the time, I was working at another organization that's since out of business. I was, you know, so I wasn't there as a community leader, but I was. I was employed in like the public health space and. Uh, HIV, AIDS. And I think you, Bianca, I don't know, am I jumping ahead? You were all three of us at the same time were, 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 were doing this. We have always been professional superheroes. I also met you in the public health space, but I think I met you through a connection at Children's. I think Children's Hospital is where I first learned of your greatness. And then in 2011, well, the end of 2010, beginning in 2011, I was like, hey, Maceo, we're going to buy a house and we need a realtor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I feel like that was where, um, because I always knew that you were in real estate, but mm -hmm. I think that that's where our relationship um, blossomed. And you took us through I mean, the same house that we're in now, the, the, the journey of that their home ownership. So how would you... What titles do you use? How do you describe what you do? If somebody says, who is Maceo? What do you tell them? When I was doing that work where I met you guys, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I met you before I got to Children's, Bianca. I think you were probably at us helping us at the time. And it was before I left um, this one place and went to Children's. I remember um, at the time, this was pre-social media, if anybody Everybody can ever remember way back that far. And there were these Yahoo groups that existed. And I was part of this Yahoo group that was called the Young Black Public Health Professionals Network. And they call themselves The Network. And I remember spending, you know, a lot of my time, like sitting on my desk, people were like asking them from asking questions like, hey, who's heard of like this study or who knows somebody here? And I would just be like, oh, I know somebody. And so I'm sending emails. It's like, man. I would love to just be able to get paid to like just support people in a lot of different ways. So, um, you know, at that time I, I had just come back to DC. This was 2002, three, four, probably when I was sitting at that desk, I'd finished my master's of public health at, um, at Carolina and was doing health education work. And um, this place that I haven't named yet, they decided they wanted to fire me, um, which was absolutely Perfect. Because uh, it was, if anybody remembers like 2005 and six ish, it was hard to find jobs. It was like everybody where I was working, we were like, hey, I got this perfect job for you. And I got to, and, and everybody wanted to leave where I was. And, um, but it, it was kind of difficult to find something else. Anyway, um, I was collecting unemployment. Um, so I want to put a plug in for all you people who went to college and that. Never knew you was going to get fired and you was going to be on unemployment. I was on unemployment for a year. I had just bought my house. And this was also when the, the housing market was like 
you said it's just audio, but what I'm doing with my hand is this very steep curve. So people would buy a house and the next door neighbor's house would sell for like $20,000, like two weeks later. And, you know, here I'm, you know, at the time, like, like thinking capitalism is the answer. And I was like, oh, let me, let me get in on this. And so I took this real estate class just because I wanted to figure out like, oh, how can I get in here and, you know, figure out how to get a house and flip it and, you know, make all this quick money, blah, blah, blah. And um, when I got in the class, it, it turned out everybody was there to become a real estate agent. I had never once considered being a real estate agent. Then I just started scratching my head. And again, if this is just audio, I'm like scratching my head. And I was like, oh, I like people. I like helping people. This would be perfect. And so that's how I became a real estate agent. I mean, but I, I still very much identify as a health educator. Um, I think uh, real estate, you know, everybody needs safe housing, you know, so I, I don't just sell houses. I, I do um, rentals uh, and I manage property. I do it. I'm, you know, you know, Bianca. I do want to thank you and and your husband Cliff for for coming to me because um, I really don't do a lot of marketing and maybe that's something as you mentioned as professional superheroes. Superheroes don't like advertise. Like you know, it's like uh, I don't want to be like, hey, do you need to be safe? You know, like mm -hmm. so. So I don't really do a lot of advertising, and I, I do my business works because somehow people know that I'm a real estate agent and they they come to me and and I'm always like very honored like when when people come to me and and I and, and for you because we really didn't know each other well at all like I mean I would have seen you in the office a few times on Georgia Avenue and mm -hmm. that's it you know I'm not even going to talk about how your your husband worked there too and whatever <laughs> kind of policies y'all broke now that y'all got these two kids and everything I'm not going to talk, talk about, about it, it. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely talk about it cuz no, I bring okay. it up all the time Isaiah Isaiah brings it up that. all the time Let's not let's stay on on topic <laughs> And and then and you became my real kind of crazy thing That's like <laughs> Uh, and then you became our realtor. Carry on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did they say? Um, when uh, when when Me Too works out. Oh. <laughs> I don't know for which one it was, but Cliff, if you're listening um, and you and you want to file a claim, I will listen to your case. Thank you. Um. And then you became a realtor. Would you stay focused? Focus, focus, focus. focus. And, and I do, I struggle with that. And that's what's great about like what I do in real estate because it, it really encompasses a lot. The, the reason I was a little bit late, I do I do a little bit of work for this congregation um, up on 16th Street. And um, and I and I, I managed some of the building and, and my locksmith was here who actually is also sort of family. His, his brother is married to my sister. You know, I, I, I think that that I, would mean he's actual family, not sort of no, family, Macy. But you know what? I'm not going to correct all of your language today. I struggle with like the marriage stuff. I, I, I get it. The marriage and then the we can have a whole maybe in October when y'all bring me back, we, we can bring it up then. But so I say that to say like my my business in real estate is very relational, you know, from the the properties I manage people I know or people I know have referred them to to clients like you some I know very well some I get to know well during the process um to the vendors um my like right now the person who does like you know the first person I call when I have like maintenance issues at my properties that I manage are is the person who's teaching me capoeira for the last 7 years you know so um I like to say 
I really only want to do business with friends. And if we're not friends when we start, I want us to figure out like how we 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 can be friends. It's I, I'm not into like the transactional stuff, and it, and it becomes really reliable. I don't remember what your question was. You know what? That's okay because I think we're still technically in your intro, but I have a question for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> So Bianca and I have been very open on this show. You know, I'm a renter. She's a homeowner. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I've always thought about it in the sense of I am like an average everyday person. She's a coastal elite. She has all of this mm. wealth. And so to me, the difference is that I'm, a, I'm an average Joe and, and she and Cliff are like aristocrats. Mm. But as a, you know, how would you determine what's best for someone when it comes to renting versus owning like what what what's the advice what's the note that you give when someone asks you should i rent or should i own clearly um not because they own a house are you know bianca and cliff uh the east coast elite that we hear so much about i think um home ownership is is very attainable i'll even go back to um my story when I when I bought my house, I was a single person. I'm still a single person, and that's for the October was, show, I guess. I was gonna say, was that just a plug? Should now I feel you like know, I'm just I'm just I thought y'all talking about being open and everything, and like Carry I on. don't know where we're about to go. Like when, when Isaiah talks about being open, I was like, oh, shh. okay, here we go. I don't Carry have to on. listen to the podcast to know what kind of stuff y'all be talking about. It gets really spicy, but we were talking yeah. about you being a homeowner. Carry on, Macy. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. When I was a home, when I became a homeowner, I was just making $50,000 a year, like barely. I think I crossed over it during the process and there was a program that I used. So I, I would say that there are some very strong there's there's ability to be consistent about knowing what your finances are when you when you own a home because it, it pretty much doesn't change. You know, if you get a, a fixed rate for the next 30 years, this is what you're going to be paying, right? And with with renters, you know, with rentals, what happens is, and I'm currently renting a property right now. Okay. So there, there's I'm the same person that I was, you know, five years ago when I sold my house, but my rent goes up almost every year, right? I think there's some value in really having a consistent idea what what things are going to look like. I mean, if you if you got money falling out your pockets, it, it doesn't matter. But for most of us, we don't. And at some point, our incomes become you know cap, and our housing costs. I mean, as you see, I mean, it's it's crazy what not just um, rental prices, but but home um, sales prices are, are doing, you know, here where we live, you know, whether it's DC or just out across the line where where, where Bianca is. So it, it really is a decision. And, and you know what, going back to, you know, I, I meet people who are like, oh, but I don't know how long I'm going to stay here. And usually these are people who are here for like 15 years. Even if you buy something and you decide you want to move or you, you decide you get married or you decide you have kids and you need more space or less space or whatever, uh, or you need to move for schools, you can always sell it or you could rent it out. You know, so I, I have people who um, who now have second homes because their life has changed and, and now they're they're landlords. Um, and so so there's a lot of options. And when you do own the property, you have more of those options when, when you don't than when you don't own that, those, that property. Macy, I want to ask you a question about just a follow-up about the mm -hmm. simplicity of one versus the other. 
I've never bought a home, but I would imagine that it is a involved process that takes time, energy, and a whole lot of paperwork. What would be your response to someone that's that's like, you know what, it's a whole lot simpler for me to get a 12-month lease and reassess in 12 months because I don't have the time, the inclination, or really the patience for all of the involvedness that it's going to take to buy a home anywhere, much less in the DMV. I would say find a, a realtor that you trust. Um, and I'm I'm looking at getting him in a house in the next, what, six months? When's your lease up? Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's, I'm going to go back to me, all right? Because it's, it's crazy. Because I remember when I was buying, a, buying, buying my house that I bought, and I had a lot of those same, like, it just seems like a mountain that I got to go over. I thought I had to have um, all my bills paid down, like zero debt, like nothing, everything just perfect. And I remember talking to a neighbor of mine who just kind of looked at me and was like, what? Like, you think people would buy a house? Like if everybody had perfect everything and, and really what is needed is having an income of something that can support a mortgage some level of down payment and that down payment actually could start at zero. You know, in some cases you might have a program. When I bought my house, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a down payment. B- Bianca, right? You, you None, zero. Zero, right? Mm, Big zero. What a time. I just, I just came across, <laughs> I just came across a picture of you and Cliff and um, we were in the, in the NACA office and, 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 it was with the whiteboard and it showed what your interest rate was. And I was like, a, oh, shit. And we can say it out loud. It was, it's a sexy 2.5%, which means I think what you just mentioned, um, what you were mentioning earlier about that consistency. Like, so we know that I don't think we're going to be in here another, what, 18 years. We've been in our house 12 years already. But just knowing that our mortgage has been the same for the past 12 years, even if our income has gone up or however it has changed, that consistency helps us sleep at night. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but you were talking about, but one of the things that you mentioned going to Isaiah's um, point, I would never want to go through. So I get nervous anytime the husband and I start talking about like, okay, so is it time to sell our home? You know, when we bought it, it was just the two of us. Now there's two kids and a mom, a cat and a dog um, and one plant. And so now we're, you know, we're always like, oh, should we sell, you know, houses in our area are going for a lot of money, whatever the case may be. But I get nervous and overwhelmed thinking about the home buying process, um, because when I did it, when we did it and we went through uh, that program, what a time. And it was a level of stress that was all worth it in the end, but it was a lot. But I do think the point that you made makes a huge difference in terms of the realtor. I think one of the things that I appreciate still is that you were like, from the very beginning, just walking us through the process and and being able to follow up with the folks when they were dragging their feet, like just having an advocate. I think that that's, you were our realtor, yes, but also our advocate. And I think that that's what makes the experience more bearable. What should people, so that brings me to a different question. So what should can, folks- Can you hold that question? Because yeah, I really want to, I want to say your process is not the normal process. So you, you, me and Cliff might have to sit and talk because they were giving you free money. Okay. Yep. It's like standing in a, in a, a turkey giveaway line when, you know, you could go to 
whole foods and you just, you know, get your turkey and you're out in three or four minutes. But when you're getting a free turkey, you, you might have to wait for like mm-hmm. two hours, you know, particularly if they're going to dress it and all that. So the process you went through was a little bit more laborious because it was a nonprofit lender. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go to a bank, you know, you know, a mortgage company, the people who are involved in that process, they only get paid when you, you get settled. So what that means is they're only they're going to make sure your ducks are lined up and they want to get you through quickly. We want to we want these processes to be quick. I don't only get paid when we go to settlement. So even with me working with with clients who go through that program, a lot of times I don't get paid, um, but it's always a long time before I get paid. But at the same time, you know, I know you're going to be completely happy having your your two point seven five or whatever. But generally that's not how the process works. People mm-hmm. have their money, they have their credit, um, they they show their, their th- where they work. You know, if they're coming out of rentals, they have a, a, um, a rental verification form showing that, yes, this person's been living here for 12 months and they pay their rent on time. And it's, it's a lot simpler than um, the process you went through. But they also have to, you know, pay pay more fees than what, what, you know, folks that go through programs like, like a NACA. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to be clear. So it's not generally as stressful or I won't even say stressful because depending on who the people are, the, the stress is different, but it's, it's not as laborious as most of the market and how people purchase. What should people look for in a realtor? If they say, yes, I want to buy a home, what questions should they ask should it just be, oh, my cousin said this person is really great and go with them? Or are there certain criteria that make the realtor selection even better or mm. more beneficial? Because like I said, you were an advocate. And so I mm. think that that makes a difference. Let's see. I'll say I, I found my realtor because somebody's like, hey, she got me into the house and it worked. You know, a lot of people come to me. Some people are referred to me who have never who weren't clients of mine. So they hadn't seen me in the real estate, in the real estate space. And and I think, you know, I think about another friend of mine, I sold a house to her last year. And she said, you know what, Maceo, when it was time for us to buy a house, another house, I actually, I sold their house and then I helped them buy another house. And they're like, we're definitely going to use, use Maceo. Um, And I, I think for me, for her, she had seen just like how I operate you know, as a health educator, you know, not in a job, but just in community space. And that, you know, being resourceful, uh, being supportive, caring, um, you know, I, I think as real estate agents, there there's a technical component about knowing about the housing market, the trends, you know, maybe neighborhoods. I don't know that I, I buy that you, you need to have a neighborhood specialist um, because all the information that is available about real estate is in our multiple multiple listing service. I, I think you want somebody who's resourceful because there will always be a problem. I, I, and we don't know what the problem will be. We don't know if the problem is going to be on the lending side. We don't know if the property is going uh, the problem is going to be on property condition side. And and you you definitely want somebody who can um, solve problems. I do think it makes sense to find someone who had a good experience and say, hey, would you know, can you can you refer me, you know, and and and, you know, just like we we get like, you know, people who do our hair or our nails or whatever. Um, I, I, I think referrals are, are helpful. 
some sometimes and, and those are for the people who may have already been through the process but yeah you know getting your real estate license is a little bit challenging i i passed on the first time okay but I'll, I'll say this i'm going on like 18 years of being licensed never you know i have a degree in biochemistry and molecular biology so there was no like, oh, let me go to college to be a real estate agent. So I kind of like never, ever saw myself doing this. But I have a lot of experience. And so finding people with experience and experience doesn't mean that they've been doing it for 18 years, right? Like people start everything at the beginning. And there's a lot of different experiences that people bring to whatever they're doing. I wouldn't be afraid to like use someone who's like, brand new license because usually they they're they're supported by whether whether it's their manager or another agent but i think being able to communicate with somebody you know depending on how much information you how how ready you are some people like aren't really good at making decisions some people are ready to go you know sometimes even me i i don't i don't have i might not have the time to handle somebody i've i've lost transactions because I didn't call somebody back in four or five days. And they were like, oh, I already bought a house. I was like, oh, okay. Like you're ready, ready to, to move. Go. They're ready to move, you know? So I think a lot of those, I don't think they call them soft skills anymore, but it's it's kind of the human skills of being able to communicate with people. And, and a lot of times we have to be very honest. I'm sure I was honest with you, Bianca and Cliff, about certain things. You know, I, I could, you know, I had a, I have this, I had this wonderful manager. I've, I've had great managers. This one particular manager, I remember him saying, bad news doesn't get better with age. Like, you got to, that means don't hold on to bad news. Like, let me sit around and think about how many different ways I can tell this person the bad news. You just got to, got to tell them, you know, and they may not take it. I could sit around and be like, damn, if I tell Isaiah this, what's he going to, uh, now we three days later and I haven't slept in three days, but no, I got to tell Isaiah, like Isaiah, this, something's gone wrong. You could just rip the bandaid off because Isaiah, you know, no Tino shade. Is he going to care? Probably not. Let me ask you this question. And I know you're a realtor, not an, not an appraiser. And I yeah. think those are different things, but yeah. I keep reading these stories about how Black mm -hmm. families' homes get valued less than white families' homes. Mm -hmm. And I want to know what can you what light can you share with us around how the value of someone's home is determined? So let's say you have mm -hmm. a client who's trying to sell their house, they move into another house. How do we determine what the value of that home is? At the end of the day, the value is whatever somebody pays for it. That's okay. what True the story. value is. Yeah. But before we get to like actually knowing what somebody's going to pay for it, what we do is we we look at properties that are within the neighborhood. Ideally, like if they could be on the same street, <clears throat> excuse me, identical or similar properties. We call them, um, what do we call them? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody been paying attention? Comps? <laughs> The, oh, the thank you. Yes, I watch HGTV. <laughs> there you go. We call them comps. Comp stands for a comparative market analysis. So you're you're looking, DC is kind of easy that way because we got all these row houses or semi-detached houses that look almost the same, right? Right. But but is it a situation to where in mine? So I live in DuPont Circle, not far from U Street. And yeah. Bianca lives in Maryland in, in a little bit of the, of the suburbs, I think, in the yeah. slight suburbs. Mm -hmm. Is this a one of those situations where Black neighborhoods are going to be valued less than white neighborhoods? And what the fuck is that? Because what we're saying is that, oh, well, we're going to determine the value of your home versus based on the value of the homes around you. So what that sounds like to Isaiah's ears, and yeah. I'm, I'm an amateur, it's like, 
Well, in DuPont, which is, I'm using my air quotes here, the traditional yeah. like hoity-toity rich neighborhood, any house over here will be automatically assumed to have more value because it's in DuPont, whether before we even look at the homes in Hyattsville. And so what mm-hmm. I'm trying to get at is, is that's not a really a good way to look at it, in my view. And am mm-hmm. I right or wrong? Am I, am I wrong to make that to make that leap to say that because what because to me, to me, Maceo, yeah. we have a we have a situation where neighbors that have traditionally been mm-hmm. more desirable, they've been higher valued, that mm-hmm. those homes will be valued higher, whether they're actually more valuable or not, because they're getting credit for being in the good neighborhood, quote unquote, or the good street, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, generally you have the same bricks and the same sticks that, that in the same copper pipes that go into all these different properties, right? People decide to pay more for them based on proximity to public transportation, to restaurants, to green space, to schools, to white people, okay? All right, so, I mean, yeah. we have the whole Fair Housing Act of 1968 or something that really meant was meant to open the housing market to essentially initially black people, but to um, people who have any any kind of uh, oppressed status. You know, uh, women, um, marital status is 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 a protected class um, in D.C. Political affiliation is a protected class. Um, other protected classes include how you dress, your your personal appearance. At one point in time, um, I mean, you've clearly you've heard of redlining, right? Redlining was literally a, a red marker was made around neighborhoods that insurance companies would have higher rates for, lenders might not lend to, and they were almost, they were black neighborhoods, right? So th- this is why, you know, I still consider myself, you know, identify as a health educator um, because yes, systemic racism is built into the United States of America, and that includes the real estate market. And so, yeah, you could you could build the exact same house that um, Bianca is living in, you know, in the middle of DuPont Circle, or, or 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 you could take, let's say, like this: you could take everybody who's living in DuPont Circle and move them around Bianca's house, move everybody else but Bianca. And Bianca's house is about to go up. Okay, yeah, I don't and care that's... that you're like one of the only black people living in. Uh, in DuPont Circle, if you go out there too, you, you get to get the value added, you know, of, of whiteness. Yeah. Excellent point. And, and it just, it just, it pisses me off every time I think about it because it, I find Macy and I know you and Bianca are aware of this, but I, I do think it's important to call it out and just how we, how these neighborhoods become to be, it's so intentional. So I can literally walk outside and I walk just a couple of blocks. There's a fire. There's a um, a fire station where where the trucks are. I walk a few blocks in the other direction. There's several supermarkets. I walk a few blocks in the other direction. There's several gyms. Like this neighborhood is literally anything you want or could need or anything that's going to maintain peace and order is within walking distance. Mm. And so it's I'm I'm always aware of that because I'm like, oh, they specifically organized this neighborhood in a way to where you literally could, you never have to leave the neighborhood to do, to get groceries, laundry, fire, police, you name it, (laughs) walkable. Okay. Yes. Whereas Bianca, who is hood adjacent, (laughs) I have to (laughs) get in my car. (laughs) Not, (laughs) Not as walkable. It's changing. And that's, and I know that that's because 
the purple line. Like I am, I, I, I see what I see what is happening here where all of a sudden this corridor is getting uh attention. <laughs> and and we talk about you Macy already mentioned it, like the proximity to um public transit and um, median income and like all of these these factors that determine also what businesses come here. We have a slew of liquor stores, gas stations, and chicken places up and down <laughs> my corridor. But a place that sells a salad, nah, we're gonna give you another Chick-fil-A. <laughs> so it's like all by design. <laughs> Cliff and I, sometimes we go back and forth about whether or not to sell our house and just rent. Like maybe, because home ownership is a lot. And sometimes we're just like, eh, let's just sell it and or buy something else or just sell it. Um, but I always hear, don't sell your home because it helps to build wealth and, and rent it out and keep it because property is wealth. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that? Is that, is that always the case? I think especially for, uh, especially for Black folks who are are buying homes and thinking about selling them and maybe not buying again. Yeah, I th- I think that's mostly always the case, particularly in like areas where the where there's steady employment, right? Like you know, middle of like Kentucky where the coal mining has like disappeared. That might not be the case, right? Because there's not like people like trying to get there. DC metro area, depending where you are, it's it's a stronger case than other places. PG got really, I can say PG because I'm from PG. Some of y'all feel required to say Prince George's. That's on you. I'm, I'm born and born. <laughs> I say PG. PG. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever. So PG got really hit by the, 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 the housing market crash. And it took a long time for it to recover where different neighborhoods in DC like didn't have any problems at all. Now, you you think about ooh I can't there's there's a neighborhood on Alabama Avenue it's apartment it's it's a condo complex and there's like seven of them and um, they really got hit too in DC but it's, it's very black um, they're they're far from the metro uh, far from grocery stores there's a long time like where you're gonna have wealth like my parents my parents have been in the same house that they were in this house before I was born that's how long they've been in the house. Now I think probably the value of the house might be it could be 350 maybe 400. This is after, you know, almost 655 years or more, you know. You know, when when they decide to sell, they're not going to sell. You know, they have that money from, you know, what the house is worth, they paid it all down. So that's like a big nest egg for somebody, you know, even when the value doesn't hit a million dollars. So, so yeah, so over the long run, and some people's long runs are shorter than others, you, you see an increase in, in property values. And at the same time, you're, you're paying down your mortgage and it's, it's, it's a little bank that you have there. You really got to call me or email me, maceo at dcurbanliving.com, M-A-C-E-O, maceo at dcurbanliving.com. I'm available to answer questions. I mean, if you already own a home, like if you need, you know, questions about like, oh, something's happening with my roof. I mean, I've done enough that I could either say this is what's going on. This is who you should call who you should call. Um, So, yeah. So I would love to be um, 
you know, a resource for people. Um, and I'm sure if you've got a good realtor um, already, um, use your realtor um, and, and call, you know, if you don't have, you know, call your friend and be like, hey, you got a good realtor. But um, folks can call me. Again, when I say call, I mean email. Don't call me. Um, <laughs> You're not going to answer. <laughs> nah. I mean, all this junk that comes to the phone. Come on. But yeah, email me and then we'll schedule a time to talk. Um, yeah. I love it. Thank you. Thank oh you. God. Thank you, Macia. Thank you for um, coming on our show. I mean, I know you've only listened to like half an episode. Hopefully you'll listen to this one. We are a very good time. It's uh, a wealth of information, foolishness, and fuckery. So okay. welcome. Welcome to the family. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great seeing you both. All right, let's get on out of here. So just to remind you, to recap you, to bring it all back to what we discussed today. Loneliness is an issue in America. The government is aware of this. They're working on it. It has been going on since before the pandemic and it continues. There are some strategies out there to address it, but it really is going to take the political will and a shift, a shift among all of us. Um, so let's stay on top of that and do as best we can to address the loneliness that can afflict all of us. Uh, Martha Stewart is on a cover at her old age. So that means there's still hope for Bianca. And thanks to Maceo Thomas for joining us and helping us break down the home ownership situation, the value of homes. And it was hard keeping Maceo on task, but he is a good time. So we will definitely have him back for Orgasmic October because I feel like he might have something to say. And if y'all didn't catch it, he is single. He is single. <laughs> If you didn't catch it. Did you catch it? <laughs> Are you reading with us? Are you reading with us? The book for the May Better You Book Club is The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health by Dr. Rita Walker. We'll be reviewing the book on June 3rd. Bianca, are you finished with the book yet? I am not finished with the book yet, but can I just say something to the wonders? I'm gonna, lean in. Okay. I'm gonna lean into the mic. Wonder because I, I I already I'm hoping that they will extend us grace and mercy. Wonders, Isaiah is leaving the country. I'm out here in these streets with the work things. Life is lifing. So let's just say in the near future, it's a Saturday at 9 a.m. and you don't see us pop on your um on your device with a new episode. We will be back. Just, 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 just putting that out there, just in case a week comes and you're like, where the hell? It's because life is life, but we will always come back because we love you. So thank you for your, for your grace in advance. Okay, go ahead. Visit warrionwebster.com for new episodes of this podcast every Saturday morning or most Saturday mornings. <laughs> right. I literally just said we might be on a little pause. And if you need to write that down, that's wardandwebster.com. Be sure to share, like, and leave a comment on all of our content, wherever you listen to podcasts, the hashtag is wardandwebster. Anything else, Bianca? Yeah, make sure you're subscribing to these things. So if we do leave and then come back, you, you are alerted and you know. Um, I think that's it. Where can they go to get some merch for this iconic podcast? Like why, do you keep, why do you keep doing this? Like a mug you, or these a are production or meeting conversation. This is like when your parents would cuss you out in front of your friends. It's just inappropriate. <laughs> We're not gonna do this in front of company. Okay. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> 
in the weeks that she's not doing a show, she could be working on that. And believe me, <gasps> Wonders, I will stay on her until I get this mug and get some other merch for you all to buy. Don't worry about it. I'm on it. I'm Isaiah Webster. <laughs> I am Bianca. I got sh- other shit to do, Ward. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we are out.